Well, good evening. Glad to uh, glad to see you all here uh, this evening. Um, my name is Ryan Pale. I am the uh, community outreach pastor here at uh, the lovely Grace Bible Church. I've been uh, I've been doing stuff working at Grace since um, 2003. I work primarily with a ministry here called Youth Impact. It's um, it's a basically like a mentoring program for um, uh, for at risk youth or marginalized youth and children in our community. So um, it's my heartbeat. It's my passion. Social justice, advocacy, those kind of things are very near and dear to my heart. So, so anyway, so Grace's like, oh, that's cool. Here, here's another job. And so now what I get to do um, as a community outreach pastor is I get to um, help facilitate relationships between our um, youth and families that we work with and the uh, families of Grace Bible Church. So we're looking at all these different ways that we can create a nice little community within our community. So um, there's some really neat things going on there. But, uh, but anyways, that's a little bit about who I am. Um, I, I do want to say, I want to give thanks that, um, that I get to stand here with y'all. Um, this, the college ministry has just meant the, the world to me. It was an instrumental in my spiritual formation. And so, um, and so to get to stand here and to serve you uh, is really a big privilege. And uh, my prayer has been um, that uh, whether it's through my words or through the scripture or through the worship or through being together or even through your daydreaming, um, that you would be transformed during, uh, during this time. So, so with that, uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord, we, um, we give you thanks uh, we thank you that um, uh, that you created us to need one another, and um, you created us to be in fellowship and to yearn for that, and to and to uh, and, and you've provided that for us. Uh, thank you so much for the church. Thank you so much for believers for one another. We um, we ask, Lord, that during this time, uh, that your Spirit would move. Um, would you please, uh, each and every one of us in here, would you please um, transform us? We uh, long to be more like you and um, to be greater uh, versions of ourselves through the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, we ask that, um, and we pray that you would bless us uh, during this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, okay, so we're going we're gonna to talk about hope uh, today. So it seems pretty simple, I would guess. But the reason I picked the topic of hope is because uh, this is a time when we're hoping, we're remembering, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming. It's called the Advent. He's coming to us. Uh, Jesus is coming to us. And so we celebrate and we get excited. Uh, this whole season, this whole Advent season is just about this notion of hope. But as, I th- as I've been thinking about it, I was like, um, just trying to figure out what, it, what is hope exactly? I kind of wrestled with it. I, I, I just, I, I don't know if I um, really had a good grasp on what it is. And, I, and honestly, I, 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 don't, I still don't think I do. I'm getting closer, maybe. Um, but for instance, uh, we use hope language all the time. Like, I hope for this, or I hope for that. I hope, um, well, I, earlier this morning, I said, I hope the Aggies get to play the Longhorns in a bowl. They are not doing that now. But, um, but we use these things. I hope the Aggies win tonight. Whatever it is, we, we we use this language of hope all the time. Um, and so I'm just thinking, is that what the scriptures are getting at? Is that the hope that um, when we read about in First Corinthians, uh, but now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, is that the hope that he's talking about? That's, a, um, that's basically like a, a glorified version of optimism. So if, if hope is an optimism, what is it? I remember the, uh, a story there's back in uh, World War II, the concentration camps, there's a, there's a gentleman, Viktor Frankl. He was an existentialist psychiatrist from, uh, from Vienna. And he was taken to the concentration camps. His wife had, uh, was killed. His uh, parents were killed. Um, and he was completely just devastated, obviously, like so many others during that time. And he was taken to Auschwitz and he um, was trying to figure out, he, he was just looking at humanity. And he sort of had to step back and just observe. He was a psychiatrist. So he was just observing human nature. And he was looking at, okay, when everybody, when people have 
everything taken away. Their identity is stripped away. Their uh, family is stripped away. Their home is stripped away. Everything about them is stripped away. What happens to people? And so he studied that. He just kind of looked and, and, and observed everything that was going on, how these people responded to, to such heartache and brutality. And what he noticed was there were three different things that, that happened. There are three different sorts of people that emerge when they're in those horrible, horrible situations. The first is he notices that some people, they get evil. So they essentially kind of get into their brainstem and they're like, fight or flight. They're going to do whatever it takes to survive. And they don't care whose feelings they hurt. They don't care if they have to step on people. All they want to do is live. And so they'll sell out anybody and everybody in order to survive. And so that's the one person they become evil. Another person, they lose hope. They fall into utter despair and they sort of wither away. Even their very lives just wither away. So they kind of sit in a corner and they sulk until life eventually leaves them. Um, the hopelessness was so strong that their life just left their body. So that was another type. But then there was a third type of person that he says, these people became noble. And what he did was he observed there were people who were, even in these horrible situations, they were sharing their food with others. They were sharing their bedding. They were sharing their shoes. Uh, They were helping other people out. They were even disadvantaging themselves for the sake of another person. And so Frankel was observing this and he's like, what is going on uh, with these people? So he talked to one gentleman and said, why do you love the way that you do? And the guy said, well, I I lost my wife and every day I live uh, in such a way so as not to disappoint her. Essentially what he did is he conducted his life in a way where he said, I don't want to disappoint my wife. I want to make her proud. And the power of that lies in the fact that he essentially, he had this hope and the relationship with his wife and, and longing to be with her so much so that he was completely transformed in his life right now. He had hope in a relationship with somebody else that transforms his life right now. And so when I look at scriptures in Hebrews 6, it says that hope is an anchor to our soul. I think it's talking a little bit more like this. That even when our world around us looks like God has abandoned us, we have a hope in something outside of ourselves and outside of our circumstances so that we can live faithfully in them. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at Isaiah. We're going to go um, into the prophets, which instantly you're thinking, oh, riveting. Okay, Isaiah 54. So the reason I chose Isaiah 54, here, here's the way kind of generally Isaiah is set up. Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I'm, we're going to get nerdy real fast. I promise it'll be over soon. There's a northern kingdom named Israel and a southern kingdom, Judah. And, um, and they kind of split up. And so Isaiah was speaking to that southern kingdom. And um, the southern kingdom was kind of watching their northern brothers, just kind of what all is going on in their world. And, and what happened was they were just terrible. They, they fell into idolatry and they were oppressive and they were unjust and all of those things. And so God raised up the Assyrians, these just awful, brutal, creatively evil people, but he made them strong, this army, and they completely overtook Israel and, uh, and, and sent them into exile and, and did all kinds of horrible things. So anyway, so Judah, the southern nation, they're, they're watching their brothers in the north and they're like, oh my gosh, what's happening around us? What's happening to the people who are still called by God? Uh, God, wh- where are you? What's going on? And they're starting to panic a little bit. And so that's sort of the emotional sense uh, it's going on in Judah as Isaiah is writing. So we're going to delve into that a little bit more. But the passage that I want to look at, it kind of summarizes the whole second part of Isaiah. It says this, Sing, O childless woman, 
You who have never given birth, break into loud and joyful song. O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor, for the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home and spare no expenses. Uh, for, uh, for you will soon be bursting at the seams and your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood. That, that's a little bit past four. But, uh, but anyways, so what Isaiah is saying here is he's, he's speaking uh, a, a blessing to them. And what's powerful about this is um, Isaiah, uh, much like prophets tend to do, Isaiah comes at just kind of verbally abuses them for the, whole first, um, for the whole first half of the book. And he's saying, you've been unfaithful and you've been terrible people and you've turned your back on the Lord and you've turned toward I- idols and you've been unjust and you've oppressed other people. And so they, he spends this entire half of the book for years and years and years just indicting the people. And so his, his message was one of indictment. You were guilty, guilty, guilty. But he moves on to chippier times. And he says, okay, because you're guilty, you're going to be destroyed. Um, I am going to raise up people who are going to come in and they were, are going to engulf you and there's nothing you can do. In fact, the army is going to be uh, so numerous that it's going to be like dust in the land. You can't even count it and it'll overtake everything. You are going to be cursed. You are going to live a life that makes you wish that you weren't alive. Um, you're going to be detached from your land, which is a big deal. You're going to be barren. Your crops are going to be barren and you are not going to be experiencing the blessing and the peace and the shalom of God. And Isaiah is saying, because of you, because of the decisions that you made and because of how wicked you people are. And finally, I'm going to take you into exile. And this is very near and dear to the Israelites, uh, to the, the tribe of, uh, to Judah in the south, very a part of their identity, part of their lifeblood, their, 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 uh, their religion was as people of Abraham that they would be blessed. If they were living a righteous life, they would be blessed. They would have all the land and the land will yield produce and they will have lots of kids and they will bless the world through them. And if not, all that stuff would be taken away and the exact opposite would happen. You would live a life of cursing. So Israel knows very well whenever Isaiah comes at them and he starts using language of exile and destruction, they know exactly what he's talking about. So it's kind of weird then. Isaiah spends uh, the first 39 chapters of the, of the Bible for years and years and years. He's speaking destruction for them. And then we come to this kind of passage. And so if I'm, a, if I'm a, a Jew and I'm hearing Isaiah preach at me and I'm seeing the armies sort of circling around me and I know that their coming is inevitable. And then I start hearing him talk about singing and praising. There's a little confusion that's going on in my mind. But much like, the, much like the prophets, not only does he talk to them about their sin, he reminds them, and this is crucial to the prophets, God will not abandon you. God does not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He was always there. He'll turn his face from you. He'll, he'll withdraw his favor from you, but he does not abandon you. So the prophet's message is hope. So from chapter 40 on, it's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. If you have any time over the break, uh, I know you probably aren't going to say, hey, let's read the second part of Isaiah. Um, but if you have that chance, I highly encourage you. It gives us a vision for where the world is going. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. But anyways, the prophet proclaims hope. And he even sings, he even says, sing barren woman. If you're a woman in the ancient Near East and you don't have kids, you were cursed. I mean, really, you're considered cursed by God. 
Children are basically how you make a living. Uh, They're your retirement package, if you will, especially if you have boys. So if you get through life and you don't have any kids at all, your future is looking pretty bleak. And so he's saying, if you haven't had kids, you are blessed. Once again, kind of confused here, God, because everything around me says that I'm cursed, but now you're saying I should sing for joy. And the prophet ultimately says, rejoice because the Messiah is coming deliverance is coming. Yes, you are going to be destroyed. The nations around you will overtake you, but the Messiah is coming. So you live in this world of despair, but yet hope is coming, is advancing as well. And then he says, there's going to be shalom in the land. When you read, when you continue to read through the second part of, uh, of Isaiah, as you read on and on and on through um, uh, 50s and the 60s, chapters in the 50s and the 60s, throughout the whole thing, he says, you are going to be at peace There will be no war. There will be no violence. This is where we hear those passages about the lion and the lamb laying down together and in peace and harmony and all those those good things. And God says, look, can you even see it? This is where I'm heading. This is what I'm going to do in the world. And the Messiah is coming and he will usher that in. So let's just take a quick look. How did uh, did it turn out for, uh, for Judah? Not great. When prophets speak, they tend to tell the truth. So uh, destruction from the Babylonians, again, uh, creatively wicked, evil, and powerful people. They came in and they overtook uh, Judah and they, um, and they destroyed their temple, which was uh, the representation of God's presence with them, was utterly destroyed. Um, and then they sent them into exile. They have that relationship with the land, that the, um, whether you're a farmer or agrarian society, whatever it is, you have this intimate relationship with the land that you were raised in, that you have farmed, that you've worked, that your hands have been through the dirt. You have a relationship with the land and they've been withdrawn from it. They've been forced out of it and into slavery. They had brief returns. So we'll, we'll hear about in like Nehemiah where um, there will be some power will take over. Some king is kind of nice and he's like, okay, Jews, we've been kind of hard on you. Y'all come on back into the land and, and, and build, your, uh, build your walls and build your, uh, build your temple, and all that good stuff. And um, they had these little glimpses of hope, these little pictures of it's going to be okay. The, the problem was the Messiah wasn't there. The Messiah had not been raised up. So they had these fleeting pictures, but because the Messiah wasn't there, they were only fleeting they never lasted. And so Israel had, or Judah had, this unfulfilled hope. All the while they have this identity about singing, barren women singing about no, pe- no violence, about peace and shalom. They have this vision and this is deeply part of their psyche. But the reality all around them communicates something very, very different. And it gets even worse, possibly. Um, the anticipation. So after they were sent into exile, then it's silence. There's silence. There are no prophets speaking God's presence because the temple was destroyed, was drawn from them. And there was a sort of like lack of belongingness that they had. Lord, where are you? What are you going to do with us? You said that you were going to send a deliverer. You said that there would be no violence. You said that we would be in peace and harmony with one another. Where are you? And one after one, the different kingdoms came in and ruled over the Jews. And each one seemed to be more ruthless and more ruthless and more ruthless until they hit rock bottom, the, the abomination that causes desolation. Um, Antiochus Epiph- 
Epiphanes, I believe it was. Um, he, he's this, uh, he was this emperor and he just hated the Jews and he persecuted and he wanted them to, um, to assimilate the, 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 his religion, um, the Greek religion. And so he wanted them to essentially lose their identity. And so what he did, he just got so angry because they wouldn't do it. And so he goes into the temple and he slaughters a pig on the altar. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, this is pretty much the, the biggest slap in the face. There's no worse affront that you could do to a Jewish person. Uh, I got a buddy, uh, Matt uh, Rosenberg, who is the director at, at Hillel, um, the Jewish center over off of uh, George Bush down there. And it's a beautiful building. But anyways, you go in there, they have two separate kitchens. You have the grains over here and you have the meats over here. And, uh, and it's so uh, important, it's so vital that these two things don't mix up at all because it would make them unclean and you'd have to clean and purify everything. So they just created two separate kitchens. So this is, we're talking about like chips and like beef patties. We're not talking about slaughtering a pig in the Holy of Holies. This is rock bottom for a people. This is the worst thing that you could do. And yet they're saying, where is the Messiah Oh Lord, where are you? I still have in my psyche, I still have the expectation, I still have the yearning that you're going to come and you're going to deliver me, but everything around me says that you've abandoned us, that you've forgotten us. And I pause on that and I just say, are there seasons in life where we deal with that? Where we look at the situations that are going on around us and we say, Lord, where are you? I'm struggling here and I don't, know if I'm going to get out of this. Whatever it is, I don't know if I'm going to get out. Where are you, Lord? And so this is where we come to the notion of hope. Almost when we, when we come to that place, we have nothing to hope in in ourselves. We can only hope outside of ourselves. So I want to talk to you all uh, for the remainder of time about what hope is. We talked about earlier how it's not just this optimism, like I hope the Aggies win or whatever it is. It's something deeper than that, more life-giving than that. Hope. First and foremost, hope is in the Messiah. Earlier I said the reason that they had these little glimpses of hope, they returned to the land. Uh, the reason they did that was because there was no, no Messiah, or that's the way it ended, was because there was no Messiah. And we have the same issue. L- listen, we're, we, we have the same thing going on with us. We um, have, because of our sin, because of the decisions that we make and thoughts that we think and words that we say, and because of who we are by our nature, we are at odds with God, meaning that we too are in exile. God created us to be righteous, to be unified with him. But because of all these things, we have separated ourselves from him. We have removed ourselves and put ourselves into exile We are hopeless and we are in despair. But to hope in the Messiah means that you believe and you know that he came, that Christ came and he suffered for our sins and he took took on our sins. We read about even in Isaiah 53 where it talks about our sins were heaped onto the Messiah. And so for us, that's exactly what happens when we trust in Christ that he removed our sins, that we are brought out of exile and we are brought back into relationship with God. And so first and foremost, hope has to be grounded in the Messiah. So if you can, just try to think through what it's like to have been Israel, to be oppressed, to be questioning when the Messiah is coming and have ruler after ruler after ruler crush down on you and your people, just like they did your parents and your grandparents and their grandparents. So imagine that, but then you hear whispers of a baby who's coming, born in a barn 
in the midst of genocide. He's born in a barn. And you start to hear, could this be the Messiah? What happens in your heart? You're thinking now generations and generations of hope are finally being fulfilled in my, in my time. Can you imagine the jubilation that comes with that? Can you imagine what that's like to just to hear whispers of it? And then when you see the Messiah doing his work, healing people, casting out demons, extending his kingdom here on earth, can you imagine the people gra- gravitating toward him and moving toward him? There's a beautiful poem. I don't know if y'all typically do poems in here. I'm going to guess no. Um, There's a beautiful poem um, that was written by a Scottish Anglican guy that looks like Santa Claus. It's called O Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. I'm just going to read it. You're welcome to read along. And, And this to me demonstrates the hope of Advent. O come, O come and be our God with us. O come our witness for a world without O secret sea, O hidden spring of light, come to us wisdom, come unspoken name. Come root and key and king and holy flame. O quickened little wick, so tightly curled, be folded with us into time and place. Unfold for us the mystery of grace and make a womb of all this wounded world. O heart of heaven beating in the earth, O tiny hope within our hopelessness come to be born to bear us to our birth to touch a dying world with new made hands and to make these rags of time our swaddling bands do you see the words he uses to touch a dying world with new made hands this yearning to be made new to be brought back into relationship with the messiah um, with god Do you see the world was wounded? Do you see this notion of wanting to redeem our time, make these rags of time, our swaddling bands? Who's going to do that? The Messiah, the Messiah who's finally come. So for this Advent season, my challenge to you, my encouragement to you would be to rekindle the desire for the Messiah. See, a lot of times the way our theology works is we say, um, you know, I, I trusted in Jesus, you know, when I was in youth group or whatever it is, or whatever amazing story it was. It's a miraculous event that happens, but it was an event. It was a time. It's, it was something that happened in the past. Now, okay, I've done that. Now let's move forward. What do I need to do next? And so I'm challenging us to slow down and to go back and to revisit what it's like to hope in the Messiah, even for your life. And even now for us, what's it like to hope for the Messiah? Oh my gosh, our nation is in turmoil right now. There's division and there's hurt and there's suffering that's going on. And gosh, let alone the world. And so what is it like to yearn for the Messiah to come and to bring peace in this hurting world, to touch a dying world with new made hands? So hope, first of all, is in the Messiah. The next thing is hope is patient. Oh man, I hate that word, the P word. I do not like it. I don't abide by it at all. I've got two seven-year-olds that constantly try it. And I am patient. Hope is patient. This means that it doesn't happen like this. And we um, live in a world and in a culture and a society that if I want this, I take this pill or I have this drink or I see this person or I go buy this or whatever it is. Um, we have instant fixes and God is saying, no, 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 it's not, that's not how it works. Hope is something that's patient. 
You remember um, Martin Luther King when he talked about standing on the mountaintop and he had this tremendous hope of reconciliation that is happening and he re- rekindled the spirit of Moses saying, I, uh, uh, I'm on the mountaintop, I may not get there, um, but I can see it, I can see the line, the, the, I can see what it's going to look like, I can envision what the world will look like, I may not get there with you, but I can see it. And he's moving toward it, but did it happen? No, oh, didn't happen in his lifetime. It's patient. There's this notion that's a theo- another nerdy, I'm sorry, another nerdy uh, notion. It's called already, not yet. So essentially what this is, is we live in this uh, sort of weird time. Let's, let's think back to, to Isaiah and Judah. Okay, they're seeing the, the promise of the Messiah in a world of despair. And, and so also we, we kind of live in that tension as, as well. So has the kingdom come? Yes, Jesus brought it. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Uh, but yet, there's still violence and hurt and pain in the world. Um, are our sins forgiven? Yes, but do we still sin? Yes. So we, we sort of live in this overlap between what's already happened and what has not yet happened. The age and the age to come. And right in the middle is the church. That's us. And we sort of try to figure out what it looks like to live as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God while living in a hurting and suffering and painful and godless world. And it's a hard thing to do. I mean, I'll even tell you this. I, I, I know um, I, I encounter uh, hurts and pains a lot, um, a whole lot. And um, I think early on, I used to have this perspective, even in my prayers, I would say, oh, Lord, just get me out of here. I'm sick of it. Can you just get us all out of here? Get us, get us into Isaiah 60 and uh, let us hang out there so this world can be burned away. And I longed for that. But the problem is, what do we read at the end of Revelation? The last thing that John says, come Lord Jesus. He's not saying, get me out of here. He's saying, Jesus, come. We need you. See, we tend to be escapists. But God sent his son. He was creator of the universe and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross God's not into escaping. He's into moving toward the pain and toward the suffering. Might we be able to do that because of the hope that we have? Finally, hope frees us to love sacrificially. I, I think about, um, there, was a, there was a guy in the fourth century in, uh, in Turkey, in what's today Turkey, and he, um, uh, he was really wealthy, and his parents, uh, his parents were really wealthy, and he had a lot, of, a lot of inheritance that was passed down to him. And what he did was he got this crazy notion that, hey, I'm going to sell everything that I have. I'm going to give it away to the poor, and, uh, and, and that's what I'm going to do with my inheritance. Well, of course, everybody thought, you're crazy. You're out of your mind that you would do something like that. Why in the world would you do that? His name is Nicholas, as in St. Nick. Um, so they're saying, why in the world would you do something like that, Nicholas? And he's, he's like, oh, I've been... I'm, I'm a believer. Those are the kinds of things that we do sometimes. And so, so then he uh, becomes a bishop and he serves the church and he loves his city. And uh, he hears about three little girls who, um, whose parents were in such deep 
debt that they had to sell the three little girls into slavery. And so what he did was he found out about that. So he went into the church treasury and he uh, said, this isn't going to happen as long as this church exists. And he went to the girl's house and he threw gold up into the window uh, as a gift to them. And that gold paid their debt so that they wouldn't have to be sold into slavery. This is, this is Santa Claus, right? Slightly different from the image that we conjure up when we think of Santa Claus. He was all about giving everything away. We're about giving or getting everything um, for Christmas. But, but the, the man that does things like that is a man who hopes because what happens when you hope in the future reign of Christ and the current reign of Christ is you detach your hands from the things that keep you from loving people. I mean, think about it. What are the things that keep us from loving other people? Their personality, maybe the way they look or smell or talk or things that they like or value or whatever it is. These things keep us from loving people. And to hope in the kingdom is for me to let go of my preferences and to let go even of myself, even as Jesus let go of my own life for the sake of another person. This is what it's like to be a person of hope. And this is what we're called to do. There's a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas. He's a Duke guy, but, but I love the way he puts it. He says, a role of the church is to remind the world that it hasn't abandoned it, that God hasn't abandoned uh, the world. He essentially says that we're the salt and the light of the earth. We proclaim God is still here and he's still active and he's still moving. So here's, I guess, where the rubber meets the road. And here's, here's what I'll encourage you with, challenge you with. Earlier I mentioned rekindle the virtue of hope during this Advent season. That would be one thing. Um, there's some great books that are out there about that. I love, there's one called Common Prayer and Inter- uh, Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. Highly recommend that. But anyways, uh, there are things that we can do to sort of rekindle that. But another thing that um, I would encourage us to do as we re- rekindle this notion of hope is, I'm not going to ask for raising of the hands, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume that almost or maybe more than half of you are going to be going home to your Christmas break to some manner of dysfunction. Uh, So there's something that awaits you at home that you're like, I'm not excited about that. Like you got a taste of it at Thanksgiving and then now you're going, you're all into crazy, crazy town. So so you uh, sit here in this sort of anxiety and you're like, how do I love these people that are so unlovable, (laughs) you know? And and so essentially, I, I mean, it's it's reality for a lot of people. And so I'm just wondering, what does hope have to say about that? What does it mean for me to move toward another person because of the hope that I have in Christ and to love them in a way that whatever they do, it doesn't affect me. There's nothing they can do that can touch me because my hope is solid in Christ. It's a hard thing to do. I'll tell you, as somebody who's been through that, that's a thing that takes years and years and years and years, but it happens in steps. What does it mean, Lord, gosh, as I move into this situation, what does it mean for me to live as a person of hope? And Lord, can you please help, me, help make me the person that needs to love them just like you loved me? And so I would encourage you, when we go back to our families, saying, Lord, how can we love well? How can we love with a hope-filled love? How can we represent you well to these people? And the last thing that I'll tell you, just to encourage you, the way that people respond to godly love is powerful. If you relentlessly love other people and move toward other people who nobody else is going to do that to, if you move toward them, there's a response that's beautiful and that's godly. 
So that's my prayer for us. We're going to close in prayer, and then I think they're going to do announcements after that. Um, Lord, we, um, we give thanks to you for the gospel, the Messiah who has come to bring the restoration of the world. And Lord, we know that even though you will restore the world right now, we live in a world with pain and suffering. Can you please help us to live right now as citizens of the kingdom where we promote peace and we promote justice and we promote truth because we long for you. And can you please help us to be the people as a church? Can you please help us to be a people that live out your kingdom here on earth? We love you so much, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.